This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. and welcome to the podcast. This is Anne-Marie Schieber of Healthcare News. The COVID pandemic is over. I mean, President Biden said so on 60 Minutes not too long ago, but he just extended the emergency declaration for another 90 days, and he is still trying to get Congress to authorize more money for COVID-19 relief. With me now to talk about that is Dr. Chad Savage. He is the founder of Your Choice Direct Care, president of DPC Action, and a policy advisor to us here at the Heartland Institute. Welcome back. Thanks so much, Anne. Well, Dr. Chad, usually physicians do not weigh in on federal (laughs) fiscal matters, but Biden's persistence for more COVID relief money got to you enough to write an op-ed about it. What is wrong with more money for health care? Yeah, so I had an op-ed in Real Clear Health recently, and it was about his additional requests for funding for COVID. And and unfortunately, you know, it's it's you know 22 billion here, 47 billion there, you know, and and we've we've so shifted recently the Overton window and what we consider acceptable that those those numbers almost barely bat people are barely batting an eye at you know multi-billion dollar uh, uh, bills that he's he's trying to get Congress to to pass. And uh, the reason why, and one of the things I like to address is just when we talk about the Overton window, it's, you know, what do people consider acceptable and how in recent decades we've, we've absolutely exploded budgetarily what we consider to be normal. Uh, if I like to make the analogy to the Austin Power movie back in the 90s where Dr. Evil, who had been frozen in the 60s, was cryogenically uh, thawed and he tried to extort from the world what he thought was this colossal amount of money when he you know, said he was going to extort a million dollars and all his lieutenants kind of winked and nudged each other. And he, <laughs> he quickly looking around the room, got the hint that that was an, an, a, you know, a ridiculous number. So then he kind of nervously says a billion dollars. And then they shake their heads and they're, they're happy with that number. Well, now, you know, here we are 30 years removed from that. And we've already exceeded another thousand fold where we talk in trillions as they did in the nineties about billions. And people have a difficult time conceptualizing those numbers because our brains truly can't conceive of a number that astronomical. And the reason I bring that up is because we already have over $7 trillion allocated or or rather authorized to fund COVID. And to give an imagery to, to understand how much that is, if you were to take a single crisp dollar bill fresh, fresh off the printing press, it's it's about point zero zero four three wide. Um, however, if you were to stack a thousand of them, that would be about four point three inches thick. Um, if you were to stack a million of them, it's about the equivalent of a thirty-five story building uh, of one dollar bills stacked up straight uh, straight up into the sky. Mm-hmm. But a trillion is a million million. That that is a quarter of the way to the moon. So yeah. essentially, in COVID, <laughs> that's a good way to put it. <laughs> yes, we have already authorized essentially a stack of dollar bills going all the way to the moon and almost twice again further. So, and it hasn't all been spent yet. So we have uh, recently, uh, it's been indicated that there's about six hundred billion dollars still left in the sidelines yet to be uh, to be allocated. 
So why is he going back to the Congress asking for more? First of all, you know, should that much money have been spent in the first place? And to put into context how much $600 billion is, we spend on cancer research in the United States around $6 billion every single year. So that means $600 billion is equivalent to 100 years of cancer research funding, which if you were to extrapolate that and think, what could be accomplished with 100 years of cancer research? Plausibly, you could cure cancer. So what would be more impactful, continuing subsidizing favorite industries uh, for COVID relief, even if you could theoretically cure COVID or curing cancer? Yeah, I I think people's eyes glaze over when they start hearing these figures. I mean, if you stop the average person in the street and said, how many zeros are in a trillion? (laughs) They wouldn't know. I mean, most of us are not even millionaires, billionaires. I mean, we just have no concept. And so it just seems like such an academic discussion, but it really isn't. It's real money and it comes out of our pockets. Um, you know, I, the, the, the um, premise for the first round of COVID reliefs was to protect people, businesses against the extreme lockdown measures, which really hurt them financially. Restaurants, entertainment venues, all these places that were forced to close down. But last I checked, they're not suffering from that. What they're suffering from is inflation. <laughs> people staying home because they have less discretionary cash. Now, I mean, is this the case with Biden wanting more money to spend on COVID and Congress wanting more money for this? Um, It seems like they need a disease as cover for more spending. Is that kind of the sense you're getting? Absolutely, I would. And as you alluded to earlier, uh, recently at the Detroit Auto Show, uh, rightfully so, uh, the president uh, acknowledged that the pandemic for all intents and purposes was, was practically over. And I will tell you from a medical standpoint, though the infection is still there and likely will remain f- with us potentially forever, the impact it was having early on is certainly not the case. There's, depending on the, the way you look at it, there's about 120th the number of cases and between 110th and 120th the number of hospitalizations currently as at the higher levels of the COVID pandemic. And, you know, there's going to be probably you know fluxes in that number um but do you retain in a pandemic stance forever and we, the healthcare system is not being overtaxed by covid right now so continuing emergency um measures is is totally inappropriate at this point and unfortunately um is being used for justification for further inflation of our budgetary spending on on this issue and as you know from the uh, the um, Inflation Reduction Act and other other bills, sometimes your titles don't always reflect what they truly do and are, are just a distraction. Yeah. So this declaration, this emergency declaration is really another cover really for more spending. You don't feel like it's necessary because like you said, COVID is not really over. Um, Biden um, seemed to be saying that to prep everyone for the midterm elections because people who are treating patients know full well that there is such a thing as long COVID, that people are suffering from adverse reactions to the vaccines. And then, of course, we had a lot of untreated disease during the lockdowns that is now coming to uh, a head, like cancer diagnoses. Um, I mean, what do you suppose that this um, emergency declaration could help with any of that? Uh, not at this point. And I mean, if you think about the magnitude of the impact of COVID, it's, uh, again, I'm not discounting it. It's real. It is out there. It is affecting people. 
but if you put it into context, I used cancer earlier as, as kind of a, a, a gauge for it. Um, cancer is the second leading cause of, of death in the United States and was always higher than COVID, even at its peak. At the most, uh, COVID was the third leading cause of death in the United States, about uh, half, if not less, than the deaths that occur from vascular disease. And yet you don't see that anywhere near the same focus on those, which are much more likely to be chronic in, in nature. I mean, those numbers are not just a spike that occurred during a pandemic. That's year in, year out, forever. So we don't see $7 trillion being allocated to fight those diseases. And one of the reasons why is because most of that money is actually not going to fight the disease. People think when they allocated that much money or, or authorized that much money to be spent, that it was all going to treat the disease. But a lot of it went to try to mitigate the damage done by the government's interventions in the first place. The government right. shut society down. And for people to say, well, why does the doctor care about that? Well, that is health. When people mm. suffer economically, there is not a strong distinction between that and the well-being and health of those people. There, in uh, 2016, JAMA, actually, Journal of American Medical Association, had an article showing that people in the lower income brackets had a life expectancy compared to those in the highest income brackets that was 10 years less. So if we cause economic destruction within our country, we will kill people prematurely. And that could have a grander effect in total lost years of life than the pandemic actually has itself. So we yeah. have to be budgetarily responsible because economies do impact health. And further, a lot of the, the things that, that um, uh, you know, our friends on the left you know, are, are concerned about, like climate change and such, are really a luxury of a wealthy society. When you're worried about where the next meal comes from, those abstractions um, seem to be just that and, and um, are, are really lose their importance to that person who's trying to feed their family. Yeah, and it doesn't lead to prosperity. When you're talking about government spending, you're taking, you're talking about taking from Paul and giving it to Peter or vice versa. But it doesn't create growth. It doesn't create growth. It just, you know, there's a cost for everything. And, and maybe you're right. It's taking hands out of um, money out of the pocket of looking for cancer, which has plagued us for many, many years or heart disease, some of these bigger diseases. Um, I would be very concerned as a taxpayer that we're just not focused enough on them. You know, another thing that people are saying we're not focused enough is the um, the vaccine mandate policy, which caused a lot of people, forced a lot of people to get injections um, against their will. But sometimes, you know, they, they got these drugs because they were didn't want to lose their job. In any case, um, we didn't have a whole lot of trial data on them. And now it's about one or two years out of the gate, and we're starting to see a lot of unusual effects from them. Do you feel like, um, you know, we're devoting enough attention to looking at adverse reactions to those vaccines? Yeah, well, not only are we not dedicating enough effort to look into them, it would appear to be that any possibility of a negative is actually actively being suppressed. And you, you see that not only in, in how research is framed, and you know it struck me when the pandemic started to, to see this, that researchers themselves that title their studies sometimes in ways that don't really reflect what's within the content of the data um, and, are, and are structuring their discussion then their conclusions to, to more fit a political narrative than necessarily what the research and the numbers are actually finding. And you get people like Alex Berenson and such who are really delving into these 
these trials and, and so showing, well, look at these graphs that they have. They're, they're not supporting what the authors are claiming. And you think, well, why in the world would people do this? And then you start to realize where the funding sources come from right. and, and who controls that. And one of my friends is, a, is one of the leading Alzheimer's researchers and, a, and one of the major academic institutions. And he had said something once that I thought was interesting as a researcher. He said, as a researcher, we are professional beggars. You know, we're not making money. We're not making a product and selling it. We have to go and convince other people to support our work. And a huge amount of that comes from the NIH, which yeah. is under the control of, of you know, Anthony Fauci and, and his ilk. Yeah. And so if you create a narrative against that, you're really biting the hand that feeds you. So they they may, you know, they're, they're very reluctant to commit essentially a professional suicide by, by it irritating those who, who, who feed them. And, you know, that's, so th this is going to bring up some questions. I think the pandemic and how it's kind of corrupted the um, independence of researchers of how we fund these things. You know, there's corporate um, uh, corruption that can occur. If you got, have a drug company that sponsors a trial, the vast, vast, vast majority of the time, it's going to show an advantage that favors whoever funded it. And if it doesn't, sometimes those, those uh, manufacturers will actually sit on the results, and not publish them. So, so there's, you know, there's concern there. Well, then the thought is, well, great. Well, then the government should fund it. Well, then you have the government functioning as a scientific, so-called scientific monopoly, controlling all these funds. And unfortunately, the pandemic has revealed the problems with that. So, how we go about, you know, writing those two things, I'm not actually sure. But it does mean that the cynicism, when you look at research, you can't just accept it. You really have to look at how the studies are designed, the accuracy, the data, the funding sources, and all these things. It's, it, you just can't say some professional society said X or some study headline said Y. You actually have to look at that, that information and scrutinize it. And doctors have to resume our role as doing that. Too often we've now said, well, the American Academy of Pediatrics has, has stated this, or, or the American College of Physicians has stated that, without, without doing the actual hard um, task ourselves of truly reading and uh, trying to understand those studies. Yeah, but like you said, you know, there is a chill throughout the uh, healthcare economy because we have so much power concentrated in s such few hands, namely the NIH and the biopharma complex that controls all the research dollars. And doctors are afraid to talk out. We, we talk out, uh, speak out. I mean, we've we've talked about that a number of times on this podcast. And, you know, I was just thinking recently, um, it was uh, Peter McCullough who came out with a really good substack this week talking about myocarditis. And he calls mm -hmm. this the tip of the iceberg because you look at this, myocarditis was fairly, um, a, a, not a very common thing among young men. And you look at the numbers and how they are growing just in the last year. I mean, certainly alarm bells should be going off and we should be looking at this more closely. But when you got one or two people controlling the, sh the, the, sh the shots, I mean, you know, how do you do that? I mean, what I, I got to ask you, what, what do you think? What you mentioned earlier, a lot of this money, this COVID relief money is sitting on the sidelines. We're not spending it. So, yeah, maybe you can make a case that it's not really contributing to inflation quite yet. But what is wrong with having money set aside for emergencies? Let's say COVID does get out of hand again or we have another um, big health care crisis. Is there anything wrong with doing that? Well, you know, one thing is, is, should that be, you know, who should control those dollars? You know, those uh, those dollars 
did come from someplace. Government doesn't create dollars. Gov- government can, and excuse my hyperbole, but they, they confiscate money, right? They take it from the taxpayer and then distribute it. And it is truly a zero-sum game in that yeah. sense. Many things in the economy are not zero-sum because you can grow an economy, you can make more widgets or something of that sort. But in this sense, there is a finite number of dollars that the government brings in every year in tax revenue. So when you take it from one thing and, 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 you are, and give it to another, you are, depri- you are depriving a different potential use. And probably the most important use is the retention from the person who earned it. So, you know, the question is, should the government be spending that money at all or sitting on it or, or whatever, allocating it? And, and I would, you know, who is the best person to be served by doing that? And I would, I would argue that government bureaucrats spend money much less wisely than the people who earn it themselves. So just putting money aside, I mean, if we had to, if something calamitous issue occurred again, that's why we have things like FEMA. You know, that, that's mm-hmm. why, in theory, the CDC is supposed to exist. So, you know, if, if the CDC was functioning appropriately and is funded appropriately, it should be prepping for future ones. But saying specifically COVID is then to, do, you know, ignore any other possibility um, that, that could arise. So we should have essentially a rainy day fund to, uh, to address emergency, whether that be, God forbid, a nuclear disaster or, you know, or some new infectious illness or, or some toxic contamination or whatever it is. But when you label it specifically, this has to be used for COVID, you're denying its use for other things. Yeah. And plus, I my feeling has always been it's like an insurance policy for crazy policies. They want to pull something that really is devastating. Then they got a pocket of cash to make up for their their mistakes. And, and yeah. that's what we're doing, basically, with the COVID lockdowns and the draconian measures. We're paying off these government actions and... Yeah, I mean, it, it's just really crazy. And um, I really do thank you for bringing this to the public's attention. I'll, I'll include a link in our podcast notes to your, it was in Real Clear Politics, right? Your op-ed on this. Oh, uh, yeah, Real real Clear Health. And if uh, I think real, uh, that, no, I'm sorry, Real Clear Health. <laughs> Get them yeah. two mixed up now. And if I can uh, just add too, you know, one, one, people don't generally feel that they feel the effects of, of the economy or, or the spending because, you know, again, you know, 10 years ago, we're half the debt that we had now. But the problem is when they do feel it, and I would argue that we already are through inflation and things of that sort, but when the dollar ceases to hold value, it, it will be calamitous beyond, you know, imagining. And, and the closest proxy we have is Cyprus about 10 years ago, where people literally thought everything was going fine, but the government was overspending, and they woke up one day, and all the banks were closed, and the only thing they could uh, obtain from their accounts was about $40 from an ATM. And the government actually confiscated a lot of people's private savings to try to pay their own debt. And that's, that's minuscule compared to the largest economy in the history of the world, the United States economy, should it collapse. And when that happens, you'll have unruly people, you'll have an unruly people and, and, and distress and famine leads to unrest. And, and so people really have to think, we have to be fiscally, we have to be fiscally responsible because there are ramifications from being irresponsible. Yeah, and we'll have austerity, and that hurts the the, the weakest of of us all. I mean, it's just devastating to, to just think about. Really frightening. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Chad Savage, uh, for coming on the podcast. And like I said, we'll include the link to your your op ed. And uh, please come back. Great. Thanks so much, Amory. All right. And if you enjoyed this discussion, please give us a thumbs up on your favorite podcast platform, become a regular subscriber and share the link. Thank you for tuning in. This is Anne-Marie Schieber. 